Good afternoon once again, and we are continuing our study in the book of Mark. We're looking at the gospel of Mark uh, chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 53 to 65. You can turn there in your Bibles, or you can look up on the screens, which is a new thing for me. Um, We are continuing the, 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 we're getting very close now to the cross, Um, But we're continuing in that uh, passion uh, narrative. Jesus has been taken, he's been arrested, and he's been brought to the house of the high priest. There, a court has been convened. And we're going to be looking at that court scene. So if you would turn uh, with me and we'll read along Mark chapter 14, verses 53 uh, to 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help to understand your word. We thank you for it. I ask for your help. Use me, your servant, frail and broken as I am, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that we might believe and might live in light of that truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you all know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, if nobody told you. But there is something more destructive and insidious to our world, right? Yes, sin, right? We can... We can Say, sin is the fundamental corrupting cause of all the brokenness that we see, including pandemic. But this thing that I'm talking about, this thing that is endemic to us, that is part and parcel to our culture and our life, it's part of the air that we breathe, breathe is not, not sin generally, but it's a specific branch, if you will, of sin. To be specific, it's lying. Lying is so a part 
of our world and our life that we barely register it unless it's a lie that we, we, that's done to us, right? Um, but if it's just out there in the ethos, generally speaking, it just goes unnoticed so frequently. I don't really need to mention lying in the political sphere. I mean, that, that's just par for the course. In fact, it's part of the game. It is what you do. You bear false witness. That is political uh, uh, politics as we know it. But it's not just in politics, of course. We see it in the world. Uh, the truth tellers, the, uh, the media, right? They're the ones who are to bring us the truth and to tell us how it is. Uh, but they're in the same boat. They turn and twist things to their own ends. They're sophisticated about it. Say, politicians aren't all that sophisticated. Uh, they just kind of blatantly lie, and everybody kind of winks and nods. But, but media generally tries to be sophisticated, put things out as truth, and yet oftentimes it's twisted. And we might intuit, of course, their lies, even if we can't pinpoint them exactly. But let me just say right up at the, at the outset, these two targets that I mentioned are really easy targets. And they're, they're, they're ones that everyone decries, whether you're on the right, the left, the center, it doesn't matter. Everyone decries these things. And it really doesn't do us any spiritual good to think about it, actually, all that much. I mean, we might get worked up over it for a bit, but it doesn't help us to think about our own hearts to examine our own lives, to question our own lies, if you will. Interestingly, in this day and age, we have the holy grail of lying at our fingertips, the internet. Every conceivable fact can be brought up in a minute, in an instant. Just Google it. Google whatever thought you want to have, and it's there. And if we cobble together enough facts, we can confirm what we want to believe, right? We can do that. We can Google it. We can seem from a verifiable source, and we can say it's a fact. It may even be a fact. We can piece it together to form the narrative that we want. We're good at that. And we can have no guilt because now we have our facts and we're just speaking truth. This is the world we live in. This is the air we breathe. I want to ask if you've stepped back and if you've grappled with this idea of how do we discern a truth from a lie? Have you stepped back? I, I find myself doing that today more than I did growing up. I, I ask the question, how is it that I'm able to discern what is true and right and good? Oftentimes, things seem very murky. Of course, it's easy to blame the broken nature of our social institutions, the immeasurable flood of information that kind of washes over us. We can blame the loss of community. We can blame the changing of history. And the discontinuity of all the different beliefs that kind of get thrown in and stirred up in the pot. And all, all of this, we can say that's out there. We, we can blame it all on a world that has changed so drastically in our mind. But anybody who studied history 
knows that all history is warped to one degree or another. Go back in time and it's the same old problem. Lies persist. It's not a new phenomenon. Now, I have to make a caveat here. Just a little one. There are degrees of warping of the truth. And as Christians, it ought to be our aim in a civil society to seek truth, to discern it. And I believe that there continues to be a call on us, a noble call, to fight against the desire to just make all truth kind of uh, go away and to have all just opinion and, and factlessness. I think we should, we should fight for objectivity, even if we can't get it perfect, because we can't. But we ought to fight for that. I, I think that. I believe that. That's my caveat. I think we live in a particularly warped age when it comes to this question of truth. Nevertheless, the truth is, see what I did there? The truth is, it is in our very nature to deceive. And this pervasiveness of lying stems not from the society out there, but it stems from our hearts. It is fundamental to our sin nature that we lie and bear false witness, not only against our neighbor, but firstly and primarily against God himself. And Romans 1 picks this idea up. It says very clearly, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness and that we exchange the truth for a lie. That's what we do as fallen creatures. It's our nature. And as we examine the text this morning, this is precisely what we see. False witnesses coming forward to accuse Jesus. Blatant lying in the courtroom. Yet, and most significantly, more importantly, we see a true witness. We see a true witness who is not only a witness, but is himself the judge who holds all peoples to account. And as we wrestle in a world that is awash in lies, and as we wrestle in the reality that our own hearts are corrupted with lies, our hope is in this one, this true witness and king who calls us to bow before him and to put our trust in him and to acknowledge him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, this is our calling. This is your calling. Put your trust in the true King. Bow before Him. Rest in Him. I want to look at this in a few ways this morning. First, suppressing the truth of the true King. That's what we see at the outset of our text. Now, just as a little bit of background, uh, Jesus is taken away. He's taken to the Sanhedrin. This is, if you will, the court of the Jewish leaders. He's taken there, uh, and he's not taken to a courthouse. He's not taken to the temple, but he's taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. A little bit odd. And some have argued that this is not really a true court. In fact, it's uh, not the way the court should have functioned at all. Some argue that that this was, uh, you know, in the in the sort of common parlance, a kangaroo court, right? Uh, people that had dragged uh, Jesus away 
and were setting up their own form of vigilante justice. But I actually don't think that's the case. And I think Mark indicates to us that this was a formal court case. And we'll see that in a few ways. First, that there was the coming together of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes all coming together to form a council. The priests were the religious leaders, the, the, those who stood at the, the forefront of the community. The elders were the judicial re- leaders. They were the ones who governed. The scribes, well, they were like the lawyers. They were the legal experts. And they came together in this moment. We see this in the text. And we also see not only that they came together to form this tribunal, if you will, but there's secondly, we see this in their seeking of witnesses. This is a formal thing. They sought witnesses. Look at verse 55 with me for just a second. Fifty-five says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They gathered a group of people together. It reminds me, what's the, how oh, I'm not going to remember the name of the movie. Oh, The Usual Suspects. Right? <laughs> they're, they're looking for, uh, you know, I guess those were suspects, but people to bear witness. Um, and they, were, they went out and they couldn't find any. And I find this kind of ironic because they were looking for witnesses, but they weren't looking for just any witness of Jesus. They weren't looking for anyone that might speak to either Jesus's defense or or, or for the prosecution's sake, they were just looking for witnesses for the prosecution, people that would uh, condemn Jesus. And they couldn't find any, so they were seeking witnesses. Thirdly, not only were they seeking witnesses, uh, but we see the high priest play a, play a role as prosecutor and judge here. He stands up as the, the voice of this tribunal. And finally, we have a court's decision Caiaphas doesn't just make a decision on his own. He turns to this council and he says to them, what is your decision? Make your, make your judgment in this case. So I think that Mark is indicating that this is a formal trial. Now, it was an extraordinary trial. It was extraordinarily because it took place in the middle of the night. It took place at Caiaphas's house. It took place on the, during this high festival of Passover. And... So it's an extraordinary case. But according to Jewish tradition, there was place for extraordinary cases to be held both quickly and judgments to be rendered expediently. Why? Because it was important for the people. Even to have a judgment made for this particular moment in this particular time at this festival, for all peoples to hear, here is a man condemned to death because of his blasphemy. It was such a a, a great uh, trial in that sense that it happened quickly to get a judgment out. So it was extraordinary. Nevertheless, it was a formal trial. Here was a blasphemer. In their eyes, it was the highest crime. Now, while this was an actual trial under Jewish law, not just some kangaroo court, nevertheless, it was the grossest form of the miscarriage of justice the world has ever seen. I want to take a minute to examine the lying that's present in the text, and then I want us to think about our own hearts with regard to it. First thing that we notice with regard to the lying is that there are no trustworthy witnesses to be found. 
One of the many stipulations in Jewish law is that you couldn't bring an accusation without the, the corroboration of a second witness. You couldn't come with just one accusation and say, I saw this person do this thing. And whether it was murder or anything else, you had to have a corroborating witness or that testimony gets thrown out. Deuteronomy 17.6 says it this way, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So it was very important for this tribunal to gather witnesses that had corroborating evidence. And as they would bring the witnesses forward one at a time to talk to uh, the council, uh, they couldn't come up with anyone who was corroborating. No two witnesses that agreed, at least none that would help their case. It's interesting. They're trying to go by the book. Another example of how this is an actual case. But the problem is to go by the book was to lose their case, right? Because they had an innocent man before them. The second thing we see in terms of the lie is even though the witnesses' testimonies were not permissible, their voices were still heard. Now, I know there might be an attorney out there or two that have had court experiences, much more than me. I haven't. But like many of you, I watch TV. (laughs) And it's all real. I mean, you go watch Law & Order, that's exactly how it happens. But I do know, in those TV shows anyway, that one of the tricks that lawyers sometimes play, at least it's popularized on TV, is that, uh, is that they want the jurors to hear something, even if the testimony isn't valid. And so they'll, they'll bring a witness forward, the witness will say something, the, the opposing counsel will say something like, I object, and then I'm sure there's legal things that they say, and then the judge will make uh, a ruling whether to sustain the objection or not, and if they, if they sustain it, they'll say something like, please strike that statement from the record, and the jury is instructed to disregard it. Right? Is that, am, I, am I close? All right. Yeah. What's the problem with it? The jury's heard it. You can't unhear things, right? You can't unhear that. And even if they can't, in sort of their logical brain, say, I can't consider this as part of the testimony of the case, it affects them. And so it is in this case. The cat is out of the bag. The jury now has those thoughts in their mind, no matter how hard they try to disregard them. And it affects their judgment. So it is here in our text. You'll hear what they said in these words, and it's, I want to be very clear that it's a close proximity to what Jesus said in the gospel. This was the false testimony. It said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Pretty close. It's pretty similar. But these were Jesus' words recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, the question is, what does this mean? What does the word this mean in the context of Jesus' words? For these Jewish false witnesses, they heard what they thought was uh, not only a, a threat against the very center of their religious life, a threat against breaking the temple to destroying it, 
Um, but it was blasphemy, saying that he could physically destroy this thing, though he, of course, had all the power to do that. But that wasn't what Jesus was saying at all, was it? In fact, the Gospel of John writes it in just a few following verses. He says, Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, but was talking about what? His own body. His own body. Now, what's the lie? And why is it significant? What's going on here? At root, what it is, is a suppression of truth. They couldn't find grounds, or they couldn't find corroborating witnesses who agreed with their presumption that Jesus was guilty. You see, they weren't even looking for witnesses who proved Christ's innocence. If they had, they could have gotten the disciples If they wanted to, uh, they could have gone out and found those that cried Hosanna to the king as he entered into Jerusalem. They could have gone and found people who had been healed, who had been risen from the dead, Lazarus himself. They could have found witnesses to defend Jesus' claim that he was indeed the Messiah. But we have to dig a little deeper. Why did they want to suppress the truth? Why do you think that was? They just didn't like him. They didn't like the way he looked. It's because it would have required from them acknowledgement that he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And if they acknowledged that he was indeed the Messiah, the one who had come to deliver his people, they would have had to acknowledge some other truths. They would have had to acknowledge that they themselves were in need of saving. They would have had to acknowledge that they had an issue that they could not solve through their own power and strength and religiosity, but they were broken and desperately needed the Messiah. They would have had to acknowledge that. And not only that, but they would have had to follow him and obey him and walk with him. And this gets to our fundamental issue. You see, we buy the lie so that we don't have to bow the knee. See, we buy the lies that we make. We buy the lies that the world brings with regard to Jesus. We buy this idea, uh, you know, maybe maybe he isn't the son of God. Maybe there's other pathways to, to salvation. We buy all of that so that we don't have to bow the knee. Some of you here this morning and some watching online may reject the testimony concerning Jesus out of hand. There's no way that he's the son of God. That's that's ridiculous. You're saying in your heart and in your mind. But I want to suggest to you that as you say those words, that you go off and you look for evidence corroborating your self-deception that he isn't God. You go off and you look for your philosophical arguments, how Jesus couldn't be the son of God. You go off and look for the historical arguments, how there's no way that he was the son of God. You go off and look for the ethical arguments that say he wasn't actually as good as he seemed. You go off and look for technical arguments concerning the text itself. You gather every possible piece of information to build your case, no matter how flimsy those pieces of evidence are. 
And this is the way the lie works. You begin with, I don't want to bow my knee. And you think, how can I get away from this idea? I need to deceive myself and to deceive others to believing that this indeed is not the Lord. And this is exactly what happened to the people in our text. You see, I don't think it's because the evidence overwhelms you. I think you actually know the evidence is flimsy, that they don't corroborate. But you believe the lie, and you lie yourself because the truth requires you to bow the knee. It requires you to acknowledge your sin. It requires you to recognize that you need to be saved. And I'm going to sympathize with you because that's a really hard thing for us to acknowledge, to come to that point in our life where we say, yeah, I don't have my stuff together. I am a sinner. I am broken, and I need a Savior, and I can't do it myself. I get that. It's hard to see ourselves as culpable, as needing salvation as not good people, as those who suppress, suppress the truth in unrighteousness and exchange that truth for a lie. This morning, if you're, if you're there, if you're here and you're sitting there in judgment over Jesus, if you will, doubting him, doubting his words, consider the flimsy scaffold of your evidence and consider the reason or the root for your reasoning and ask yourself, what would it look like for me to bow my knee before the king? To acknowledge my need of him and to trust in him. But believer, I know you confess that Jesus is Lord. You do. I do. And that's, that's true. We, we stand up in front and we make profession of faith, and we confess it because we believe it, because the Spirit has enlivened our hearts and shown us that this is true. But I also know that we continue to lie, that we continue to lie to ourselves and lie to others. There were liars in the court, but there was a liar in the courtyard as well. Did you notice Peter was out there. We know from the Gospel of John that during this uh, trial before the Sanhedrin that Peter was being questioned. Aren't you one of those followers? And three times he says, no, I, 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 I'm not. Why did he lie? Well, we'll look at more at that next week. But why do you lie? Why do I lie? And if we're honest with ourselves, we lie for the same reasons that those who have yet to put their trust in Christ do. We, we lie for the same reason. We don't want to bow our knee before the king. You see, a lie is something we do to get away with something. It's a tool. It's a way of manipulating the world around us. It's a way of pushing off the authority of Christ over us. And there's so many examples of lying. Some people lie 
who uh, just want to hide, right? Sometimes we lie because we don't want people to know what the brokenness really is in us, right? We want, we want to put up a facade, a fake picture, so that people can't see the broken reality of who we are. But in reality, when we do that, what we're saying is, Christ is not sufficient for me. I need the approval of others. Some of us are truth tellers. Like I'm not, I'm not one of those who hides behind lies. I don't mind what people think of me. I speak truth and I tell people how it is. And we find pride in that. Some of us are like that, but there's a lie underlying it. The, the lie is that we have all knowledge, that we understand all things of God, that we, that we somehow have it all together, and we often oversimplify the realities and the brokenness and the mess. And we don't recognize our own culpability and, and struggles that we have to understand things. We lack humility, and because of all of that, we project our strength. Well, I just speak truth. Some of us lie to make people happy. Some of us lie to show competence. Some of us lie to get ahead in life. Some of us lie for money. Some of us lie for power. Some of us do many of these things, different points. At the end of the day, our lies are born out of that desire for ourselves to be king, to rule our lives, to push Jesus off. We don't need him. We've got it together. We can keep the facade up. Dear believer, there's only one true king. And he calls you to bow before him in humility, recognizing your desperate need of him, to trust in him, and to rest in him. And he does not lie. This brings me to the second idea here, that the just judgment of the true king. Caiaphas cuts to the chase. After these witnesses can't corroborate with one another, Caiaphas just cuts to the chase. He said, have you no answer to make, Jesus? What is it that these men testify against you? Of course, at that moment, Jesus doesn't say anything because he's not going to give credence to those false witnesses. He remained silent made no answer. But again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Let's just get to it. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, the son of the most high, the son of God? Are you claiming that for yourself, Jesus? To the credit of Caiaphas, he wants to get to the heart of the issue. He wants Jesus to incriminate himself. And who does Jesus claim to be? Well, first of all, he does, like I mentioned, he doesn't entertain the false witnesses. And as the prophet said, he was silent before his accusers. But secondly, Jesus answers Caiaphas. Just as Caiaphas was direct, who do you say that you are? Jesus says, I am. Are you the Christ? He doesn't just say yes, he says I am. This affirmation alone was enough for the high priest to want to condemn him. 
He'd already made his judgment concerning Jesus without entertaining the idea that Jesus might in fact be the son of the blessed. He didn't entertain that idea. So Jesus said, I am. He, he just goes out with it. But the third thing that Jesus does is he flips the script. Did you see this? They're standing in judgment over him. All right, Jesus, here's the tribunal. The most powerful figures in Jerusalem and all of Judea, the, Judea, the most powerful of religious leaders, are standing there caught bringing judgment against you, Jesus. Are you going to stand and say that you are the Christ? He says, I am. And then he flips the script. He says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's an interesting declaration. We read a little bit earlier in our service these words. These words are drawn from the apocalyptic language of Daniel the prophet. And they are expressed in the royal psalms of David, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. The Son of Man described in Daniel was not a reference to the humility of Jesus, but rather to the glorified King who comes again to judge in righteousness the living and the dead. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I am, and I'm the judge, not you. Not you. Hear these words from Psalm 110. This is God, it says to David's king, to David's Lord, namely the Messiah. Hear these words. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. The language of King Jesus. See, buying that lie that there's no greater king who rules over you is a deadly matter. To buy that lie that, that you don't have to bow the knee is a deadly matter because here stands before us the King of kings and Lord of lords who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready to stand before him? Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress this truth. I added this. The truth. But this truth. That he is king. This truth. That Christ is coming again. He is the just judge. And he judges the hearts of men. And he calls us to repent and believe. Believer, you know that the lies creep into your heart. You know it. You know how it keeps you from bowing your knee and following this king. And you know the destructive nature of those lies, not only in your own life, but in the life of others. Believer, remember that Christ is Lord, that he rules over you and he calls you to follow him, to humbly acknowledge your sin and walk in faith walking in the way 
of the King. Friends, it's a terrifying thing to know that our hearts and all the lies that are therein are exposed before this great judge and king, the Lord Jesus. But there's hope in our text for those who chase after lies and suppress the truth. And I'm going to close with this hope, the wonder and love of this king, the wonder and love of this king. There's a couple things that stand out to me. Jesus had just declared that he was, in fact, the son who comes with power and glory with the clouds, that he's coming to judge the living and the dead. But where is he now? Where is he? He is before a tribunal who is condemning him to death. Do you remember all throughout the Gospel of Mark, this idea that Jesus was the Messiah was kept secret. Even when his disciples declared it, even when Peter said, you are the Christ, back in chapter 8, Jesus was keeping them silent. Don't, don't tell anybody. When he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he showed his glory and power in the clouds, he told his disciples, don't, don't say anything. Don't, don't let the cat out of the bag yet. But now he comes to this moment when he knows that his words will be used against him and that they will take him to the cross. He declares, I am. In that moment, when he knows that his life is going to end, he says, I am. It is the time. The time is now. Come, take me away. And he goes. And the text ends in this really tragic way. After this, they took him and they spit in his face and they took his eyes and they covered it and they beat him and they said, prophesy, tell us who's hitting you. Who's, who's that? Who did it this time? He would go and he would take a crown of thorns. He'd, put, he'd wear that crown of thorns and he'd wrap him in a cloak and mock him as the king of the Jews, and he would hang. He would be crucified, and he would die. This king of glory. And why did he do it? He did it to justify sinners like you and me. Liars like you and me. People don't want to bend our knee to him. He said, I want to die for you. And then when I come in power and glory on the clouds, I am going to gather you up as my own. And I'm going to call you into my presence. And not to bring my wrath upon you because I've taken the wrath that you deserved and put it upon myself, but I'm going to take you into my arms and love you and care for you and show you the truth that I am a God of justice and I am a God of grace and of mercy. See the wonder of the love of Jesus in this moment, who is the King of glory, who is strong and mighty, who comes to judge the living and the dead, but for our sake, for your sake, was judged. 
What wondrous love is this? Cause the Lord bliss to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. Let's pray.